But the Taiwan contingency is something that the U.S. and Japan are going to have to have a pretty serious conversation about, and that will probably start before the upper house rather than after. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Francis Ilia. On October 31st, Japan held a general election to determine the makeup of its lower house of parliament. It was also an opportunity for the ruling party's new leader, Fumio Kishida, to gauge his popularity and determine the size of his government's mandate. What do the results of this election mean for Japanese domestic policy? Who exactly is Prime Minister Kishida? And how will Japanese foreign policy change in the coming months and years? To answer these questions and more, we're joined today by Dr. Sheila Smith, a senior fellow for Asia-Pacific Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Smith. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. It's a pleasure to have you back. And today we want to discuss the October 31st Japanese general elections. But before delving further into the results of what transpired on Sunday, could you please give our listeners some background on how Japan got to this point? Because in just a year, we have had Shinzo Abe's resignation, COVID-19, the Tokyo Olympics, Yoshihide Suga's resignation, and I'm sure that a lot more has happened as well. So I think the important backdrop for your listeners here, of course, is to understand that, that largely you've seen this accelerated pace of political change in Japan because of the global pandemic. Um, like many democracies, the Japanese public was quite critical of its government. And so both Prime Minister Abe and Prime Minister Suga suffered from a, a considerable dip in their public approval ratings from 2020 into 2021. Um, the, the second piece, of course, though, is you know, in Japan, you've had a prime minister in power for almost eight years, and that, of course, was Prime Minister Abe. And so for most of us who look at Japanese politics more closely, you know, many of us were wondering, well, what does post-Abe Japanese politics look like? And prior to Abe's return to office in December 2012, you had a fairly annual, a fairly predictable annual change in, in the leadership at the prime minister's level and, and many more cabinet level changes in between. So I think there was a real worry that a post-Abe Japan was going to look a little bit like a pre-Abe Japan, where leadership would change frequently, and especially here in Washington, where policymakers really want to engage in some long-term strategic planning with Japan. I think that was a little bit their concern. So I, I'm not sure we're not going to see that, of course, because we had Mr. Suga for a year. It looks like we're going to have Mr. Kishida at least for a year, if not longer. Um, but I think the question still hovers closely in the policymaking circuit, uh, whether or not Japanese politics will remain stable going forward. And Dr. Smith, uh, all three of them, Prime Minister Abe, Prime Minister Suga, and now Prime Minister Kishida, uh, belong to the Liberal Democrats. So I wanted to ask you, what are the major political parties in Japan and what do they roughly stand for politically? So that is, uh, there's a lot of parties in Japan, but when you say the major political parties, the the LDP is the largest uh, of Japan's political parties. And it came out of this election with 261 seats uh, in the 465 seat lower house of parliament. So that's a, it's a, a, a majority being held by the LDP. The next party um, is the Constitutional Democratic Party of Japan. 
and it has 96 seats coming out of this election. It is a centrist left party. Uh, you may be able to tell by the name that they are they advocate support for the current Japanese constitution. Uh, they that you know contrasts with the LDP's platform, which is for constitutional revision. Um, but they are led by, or they were led uh, until this election. Um, by a man named Edano Yukio, uh, who was part of the former Democratic Party of Japan, as was the Secretary of General of the party, Mr. Fukuyama, and has many, the CDPJ therefore has many of the old members of the, the, the DPJ. The interesting thing um, coming out of this election is you have a, a new third rank ranking party and uh, a party named Ishin no Kai, or the Japan um, Restoration Party is a direct translation, but many people know it as Ishin. Uh, this is a, a regionally based party, came out of Osaka, uh, so Kansai regional politics. It has been on the scene now for multiple elections. It is a center-rightist party, um, much more conservative uh, on the conservative end of the spectrum, uh, and really wants to advocate for greater local autonomy, especially for Osaka. It wants to break free a little bit from the central government's grasp of its local policies on taxes, on economic policy making, and things like that. They went into this election with 11 seats, uh, but came out of it with 41 which suggests that the the Japanese, the, the votes that the LDP may have lost uh, tended to head towards the Ishin no Kai, the Osaka party. Uh, and then the fourth largest party is Kometo. Uh, Kometo is a, reflects the a Buddhist populist movement called Sokka Gakkai. Uh, it has been around in Japanese politics since the 1970s and has reformed itself a couple of times, but it has been in coalition with the LDP. In other words, it's been part of the governing coalition of Japan for over a decade and a half now. So those are the four largest parties. Kometo has 32 seats. Uh, so you see that there's a big drop from the LDP's 261 to the next, which is 96. And then obviously these other two smaller parties, Kome and Ishin, are much, much smaller than that. So there's a lot, there are some little tiny parties with, you know, 10 members or three members that we don't need to actually get into that. Uh, but those are the four major political parties in Japan. The only other party I draw your attention to, uh, because it's interesting in this election, and that is the Japan Communist Party. For those of you who may have missed it, uh, Motoko Rich from the New York Times wrote a really fabulous uh, article about the Japan Communist Party. Um, and it's largely a party that, although it has communist in its middle name, is far, far from the uh, a communist party as we may have understood those parties' revolutionary uh, aspirations in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, it is it is a far cry from a revolutionary party today in Japan, but it is well known. It has 10 seats coming out of this election, and it's quite well known as a pretty consistent veto on specific issues. Nuclear power, for example, uh, the redistribution of income, obviously, and um, on a couple of other issues, it is quite uh, skeptical of the U.S.-Japan alliance as being being in Japanese interests. So it has some very uh, pronounced policy positions, uh, and it um, attracts a lot of attention from the centrist right. And they like to point out that it is. It is a revolutionary party that undermines Japanese democracy. But, but it is an important party because of that veto role. It has a small number of seats, but it has a loud voice 
uh, in the in the discussions on some of these critical issues. That's very interesting. And you already mentioned a little bit about the results of the election, which were, you know, the Liberal Democrats getting 261, the Constitutional Democratic Party getting 96, Ishin getting 41, Komeito getting 32, and then the Communist Party getting 10. And I want to ask you if if these results were expected, in your opinion, and and did anything else stood out to you from the results? So, sure. I think, you know... This political season has began, of course, at the end of August into September, and um, it began with the LDP leadership race, right? Because that's when we understood that Prime Minister Suga was not going to run uh, in for his party's presidency. So that really, um, you know, changed the dynamic of this fall, and it certainly uh, the leadership race for the LDP was a very exciting precursor to the lower house election. In fact, I would say the politics of the LDP leadership race may have been much more interesting um, and fluid than the politics of the campaign for the lower house. And I tell you why I say that. I say it for two reasons. One is because nobody expected Prime Minister Suga to not run. Uh, everybody expected him to run. And therefore the question is, would somebody really stand up against the sitting prime minister? So when he threw in the towel, threw in the towel, you then had a question, then, then it was excitement all around. Who is going to throw in their hat and who is going to take what position and how are they going to advocate for the party's future? And during that, you know, during that time, Prime Minister Kishida was the first candidate to speak up and say, I'm in. Um, and he said, I'm in even before Suga decided he was not running, which already started to look a little bit like, uh-oh, <laughs> there's a serious challenger. And Kishida came out with guns blasting, so to speak, um, saying that the party itself needed governance reform, that, that too many of the old timers were holding on to the senior party seats and that they are not transparent and they are not accountable to the membership of the party. So he didn't go after COVID policy. He didn't go after the governing policy of the of the Suga cabinet. He actually went after some of the issues that had been bubbling up over those long eight years of the Abe government uh, inside the party itself. Uh, I, I write a little bit about this in the blogs that I wrote covering that election and the in the blog that I wrote this morning on the on the lower house election, but. But there was a real tension between younger diet members in the party, in the Liberal Democratic Party, those who were first, second, third termers, uh, and the older, senior, in some cases, heavyweight factional leaders. So there was some real tension there and pushing back against the idea that the factions, the faction bosses in the party should decide who was going to or who was not going to be the leader of the party. So there was a lot of interest and in, in, a uh, thoughtful kind of commentary coming out of the candidates, but also coming out um, of the younger membership of the LDP in that race that really, I think, showed us a little bit of the underbelly of the generational change that's going on now, especially in the LDP, but across the board. By the time you came out of the LDP race, and we can certainly get into more detail if you'd like, especially on the defense side, um, there was all kinds of policy debates and you came out and in effect, the LDP opted for the more status quo oriented, uh, stable candidate, as opposed to the one candidate that many people thought had a real chance at winning, which was Konotaro, uh, a younger uh, diet member, a seasoned politician, but younger um, dynamic leader who is a bit of a maverick, uh, not um, 
not uh, shy about voicing his opinion when it, it tends to run counter to the LDP's policy platform. And he was well known, for example, of taking a position that was anti-nuclear, whereas the party had a strong pro-nuclear party uh, policy. Uh, he spoke up when he needed to. Um, he was interesting for people abroad because he spoke English fluently. He spent a lot of time in Seoul and China in Beijing in his younger years, as well as here in the United States and in Europe. So he was a very cosmopolitan, well-versed uh, in foreign affairs. And then he served as foreign affairs minister and then defense minister. So, And he was very popular with the Japanese people. The other piece that was really important is that Kono himself led the vaccination rollout for Prime Minister Suga. And it was a bumpy rollout and he went on TV and was very forthcoming and very straightforward about the mistakes that needed to be corrected and things like that. So you had a pretty strong popular support for Kono as well. He didn't make it. Um, so coming out of the LDP, you have, well, not the guy who's the, you know, has all this appeal outside the party, but the, this much more sort of status quo, uh, cautious candidate coming out, um, in the, in, in Mr. Kishida. And then that's how they went into the election. That's how the LDP went into the election. And very shortly after Mr. Kishida was voted in by the Diet as Japan's prime minister, he called the election and he called it with something like 12, 12 days or so, um, to get ready to campaign. And that's very unusual. So he threw down the gauntlet and he threw it down fast and we had our Halloween uh, election. Again, surprising the opposition and surprising many people, including myself, that he was going to go at it so quickly. Um, and I think a lot of people were really kind of worried inside the party as well as outside that, you know, is the LDP really going to be able to hang on? Um, nobody thought they were going to lose power but it's important to remember that they had Mr. Abe, when he came into office in December 2012, had a two-thirds majority in the lower house. And he sustained that through the 2014 and 2017 elections. And for those of you who are not used to parliamentary systems, a two-thirds majority means that you really can pass any piece of government legislation that you want uh, because you've got such a supermajority. And the lower house, of course, has the has the has the power to 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 set the legislative agenda. So if you're the ruling party with a two-thirds majority, you can get so much more done than if you just have a simple majority that formed your government. Um, so it was a pretty powerful legislative foundation for Mr. Abe, and the LDP knew it was not going to have that coming out of this election. They all knew it. Their internal uh, pollsters said we're going to lose anywhere between fifty seats to. 40 to 50 seats, could be as bad as 70 seats. So there was kind of doom and gloom. Um, and Kishida, as I noted, said that he thought that he would claim victory if he and his coalition partner, the LDP and the Kometo, would have a simple majority. So that was a really baseline, you know, bottom floor of what the what the government would have needed to stay in power. Um, they didn't. They did much better than that. And they did much better than that. And I'm sorry, this is a long explanation of the, of the election. But the last piece of the puzzle, of course, is the structural weakness of Japan's opposition parties. And um, again, for those of your listeners who are uh, election experts, you know, it's important to understand that, that Japan has a mixed district system. It has uh, 289 of those 465 seats are from single, they're single member districts. 
the other 176 are proportional representation. So every Japanese voter who goes into the poll can has two votes, one for their, their constituency and the one candidate they want to support. And the second is for the party that they want to support. And that can be an opposition. It could be any party at all. It doesn't matter. And then that party vote translates into the party uh, picking the people that it will it will seat in the diet. Um, so this mixed electoral district is structurally complicated. Um, but as you know, here in the United States, we have a single member district system. So first past the post wins the seat. Uh, it requires incredible organizational capacity and it requires incredible resources. It's hard to win in single member districts. And so for a smaller opposition party um, that may not have you know, the benefit of the largesse of donations that the LDP gets, or that may not have the organizational capacity, trying to run that election on your own is hard. So the, the decision on, for this election among the opposition parties, the leftist leaning ones at least, was to have a single unified party list. Um, and that if there was a strong candidate in one district, that party would run their candidate. In another district, the, another party would run their candidate. And then they would ask their supporters to vote for the single platform candidate, um, the coalition candidate. So they had an election, electoral coalition that included the Japan Communist Party, which is why I mentioned them earlier. Uh, it was not terribly successful in the end. Um, and the largest party, the CDPJ, uh, lost uh, 14 seats. So they came out uh, with a setback. Um, the JCP lost two seats. The Japan Communist Party lost two seats. Um, and some of the other parties picked up a seat or two seats here or there. Um, but really for that, le for that uh, left coalition, electoral coalition, it was not a good day. And I want to pick up on a, on a point that you made both in your most recent CFR blog post and also in your latest response, which was that there seems to be this changing of the guard going on, not only before the election, but also after the election, because as I understand, a lot of elder politicians lost their seats. Yeah. And so I want to know what, what does that mean for Japanese politics going forward, especially given that Prime Minister Kishida is, is sort of a status quo individual. Well, I think this is the this is also where the the LDP race plus the lower house race together give us an interesting set of at least maybe not conclusions, but some tantalizing kind of um, ideas about generational change going on at the moment. You know, we tend to think of generational change in Japan along the lines of, oh, wouldn't it be great if younger candidates were allowed to run for prime minister. People like, you know, Konotaro is, is, is not that much different in age from Mr. Kishida, but he exudes a kind of, you know, innovation, youth, youthful energy. Um, but, you know, people like Koizumi Shinjiro, who is the, is the son of the former prime minister, Koizumi, uh, these are younger people who have a huge amount of popularity and they can speak beyond their party bounds. They can speak also on issues, some of the social issues that younger Japanese are con more concerned about. And they're not so attached to some of the older sort of taboo issues of the conservative party. Those people are still, you know, we tend to think of generational change in that way, a leader who is younger. But I think what we're starting to see in the LDP race and then in this lower house race as well, this question of how younger legislators actually feel about the way the party is run. And I mentioned that earlier for the LDP race, but the outcome of the lower house also gave us a little inclination of voters' preferences. And this is true not only for the LDP, the conservative 
politicians. But it was also true for the older, old guard of the left as well. And so in the blog I wrote this morning, I noted that there were some considerable losses. I think there were five, and these were single member district losses. Remember, these were not on the proportional list, but people had to go fight for their in their constituency. So there were some notable cases like Ishihara Nobuteru, who um, he's voted into Tokyo's 10th district, very famous. His father was Ishihara Shintaro, was the governor of Tokyo, and before that, an LDP pop, uh, politician. He couldn't, he lost his seat to a young, relatively young, she was in her mid to late 40s, uh, woman from the CDPJ. And he couldn't come back, like even on the proportional list. He was unable to garner enough votes to, to come back to power that way. Um, another one who's probably not very well known outside of Japan, but uh, Noda Takeshi is a longtime um, sort of steady stalwart for the for the LDP. Um, he also went down to a younger, and he's from Kumamoto, right, from the south. Uh, and you had the former minister of the environment and the former minister of regional revitalization, both from Fukuoka, they went down. Um, so I, I, I think you're seeing some seasoned, you know, el, elder, not in the sense of age, but elder in the sense of the, the, the term, the number of terms that they've been in office. A number of those uh, LDP folks went down. The most shocking stunner, though, was Amari Akira, who Kishida-san had uh, appointed as the secretary general of the party, which, as you know, is a very important post uh, in party leadership. Um, it's the first time in the history of the party that the secretary general has lost his election. Um, so these are not people in the secretary general's position. These are not people who are vulnerable to being thrown out of office by their own constituents. But Amari in his 13th term was, was voted out. And, um, you know, he, he, he did come back via the proportional list of his party, but he tendered his resignation to the prime minister and the prime minister accepted it. So you, you see some heavy hitters, people who are not new to politics, right? Um, and, and they were, they, they were unseated in this election. And it was also true on the left. Uh, you know, again, I, you know, I'm, it shows my age, I suppose, but, um, you know, I was around in the 1990s uh, watching Japanese politics after the the, the period of, of political reform. And obviously, this is also the decade that the Cold War came to an end. And so one of the most dramatic and uh, influential politicians of that era was Ozawa Ichiro, uh, who was a former LDP member. Indeed, he was the secretary general of, his, of, of the LDP at one point. Very strong, very savvy. They used to, his nickname was the Destroyer. When 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 the LDP went to elections, they'd unleash <laughs> Ozawa, um, and he was the one that led forty uh, some Diet members out of the LDP and began the the, the process of per- political realignment that we saw culminate in the success in two thousand nine of the Democratic Party of Japan and being elected to office to govern. Um, and again, it was his electoral skills that that allowed the DPJ to win. Really, it was because Ozawa was was such a master at his craft, so to speak. But he was out uh, in this election, and so I think for a lot of us who've been watching politics over time, of course, Ozawa is, is is elderly, but you know that doesn't mean that you lose elections in Japan. It, it tends to mean in single member districts if you have a strong powerful politician, they tend to stick around <laughs> um, because their their election, their electoral uh, constituents are proud of them and want them to continue to wield power. So another name that may or may not re- resonate for your um, 
um, for your audience was uh, Tsujimoto Kiyomi, who is another uh, candidate, I'm sorry, lawmaker from the left, who was a vocal critic, young, dynamic, came to power uh, alongside that uptick with the left in the in the late 90s, early 2000s, very savvy uh, critic of issues of defense, of social welfare, really made a name for herself in, in opposition party politics, and she lost her seat as well. So you, you saw this kind of unseating, in a way, of some of the big names um, in Japanese politics. And for me, the impression I felt was you had this real push in the 1990s onwards for political reform in Japan. This is, after all, the moment that um, campaign financing laws went through, it's also when the electoral districts were changed to this mixed uh, district system. Um, and the real idea here behind those reforms was that Japan would have a serious policy debate by its politicians. And so what you're seeing, I think, is the end of an era of a certain group of politicians, Ozawa first and foremost, of course, because he was the architect of some of these changes and the implementer. Um, but a, a, an era of that generation of political vision in a way uh, is is leaving and the Japanese voters now are looking for something different. And so I ended my blog today by saying it may be the end of an era of a certain group of Japanese politicians who sought to change Japanese politics structurally. Um, and now Mr. Kishida and his generation, the generations that are coming behind him, uh, it's their turn to think about how they want Japanese politics to, to operate, what vision they're going to put forward for their country. And so this is a little bit of a subtle way of thinking about generational change, um, but it's an important one, I think. So Dr. Smith, on that point on the, the future vision for Japan of this new generation, with the election over, what domestic policies do you expect Prime Minister Kishida to pursue in the coming months and years? And what are his domestic priorities? For example, I know that uh, we touched a little bit about this earlier, but changing Japan's constitution was a contentious subject of debate during Prime Minister Abe's administration. Is that something that we could see Prime Minister Kishida attempt to do, even though he does not have the two-thirds majorities that Prime Minister Abe had, or, or is he focused on something else? So I think there's two things just I'll do the let me do the time frame first because that's really pretty important. Um, the there's a kind of general time frame by which I think the Japanese voter is expecting Kishida-san, Prime Minister Kishida to make good on his campaign promises, right? And that's, you know, between this is, you know, they're going to be looking for that over the course of the next 6 to 9 months to a year. The second is a political horizon. And of course, that is a similar one in the sense of the end game. But um, next summer, there's an upper house election. And so I think the prime minister and his cabinet will have their eyes on that next election as informing the kinds of priorities, but also the kinds of results that they feel they have to, to, to bring forward to the Japanese voter. So I think starting with the economic platform, interestingly enough, um, Prime Minister Kishida during the LDP race, and then again, uh, since has made a point of saying that um, he wants a, a different kind of economic policy goal. And that is not just the end game, the end game being um, economic growth, but he wants to see wages increase. And he, so this is a slight, it's not this, it's not a different model, but it's a slight difference from the Abenomics uh, 
policies that were put forward under Prime Minister Abe. Um, the idea here, of course, is to encourage or force Japanese corporations to share their profits with their workers. And um, basically not to use the stock market as the indicator of uh, economic growth or economic success, but rather look at wage hikes, wage increases as an indicator of economic success. So this will be an interesting time to watch. Um, I'm not an economist, but in terms of the way that Kishida-san has framed his policy emphasis, it is going to be very much about tax reforms and other kinds of reforms that will, in the end, uh, begin to privilege the Japanese household, the Japanese worker. And the indicator may not be the stock market, but may very well be um, how much and how much movement Japanese wages demonstrate. So that was the one big critique during the years of Prime Minister Abe about the Abenomics approach. And that is that you saw lots of profitability on the stock market, certainly saw lots of profitability even before Abenomics among Japanese successful Japanese corporations, but that wages remain stag stagnant. Um, and so I think this will be an interesting moment to watch Kishida-san try to implement this goal. And you'll have a huge debate, I'm sure, between those who want more fiscal restraint. In other words, to, to reduce the debt of the Japanese government uh, between and those who want to stimulate the economy and uh, help Japanese citizens overcome the effects of the corona and the coronavirus pandemic. Um, so I think it's in that that I think is going to be first and foremost how Japanese voters are expecting Kishida-san to make a difference. And um, on the second piece, on the politics side, of course, I think he is. There's a lot on his plate uh, in terms of Japan's foreign policy and defense policy in particular. Um, there's a whole list of defense reforms waiting for him to move forward. I don't think those are going to happen before the upper house election. I could be wrong, but I don't think they will want to rock the boat on some of these issues because some of these issues actually are quite significant and will probably invite a pretty vibrant domestic debate over the rights and wrongs of these choices. So I think there's going to be a, a tendency politically to do the things that have um, less controversy surrounding them. Now, on your question of the Japanese constitution, um, Article 96 of the Japanese constitution says that in order to revise it or amend it, I think amend is the new language in Japan, um, you have to have a two-thirds majority in both houses of parliament. So not just one, but two. Again, making that next, next year's upper house election pretty important. When Kishida-san came out of the election, she, he had given a policy speech after he had been elected prime minister um, back on October 4th and before the election was called. Uh, and he gave a long, a long policy uh, speech, but he gave another one after the election. It was briefer, but amplifying, I think, some of the issues he raised after he was elected. Um, and, you know, in there was uh, increasing the defense budget, which is a part of the LDP platform now, is to aspire to 2% of GDP. And the other, he doesn't quite say that that's what he's going to do. He simply says he's going to increase Japan's defense spending. Um, and then the other issue was constitutional revision, which I was a little surprised to see um, because Kishida-san himself has never been a, 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 an ardent advocate of that as a priority, not unlike you know Prime Minister Abe. Um, the party, however, has long been an advocate of constitutional revision, and I think there are voices in the party that are now increasingly calling for uh, that as a goal. 
So I think he, it's on it's on the horizon, at least as an attempt. But he's going to need to ensure a two thirds majority in the upper house next summer if he's going to tackle that head on. And I want to pick up on those uh, defense issues that you mentioned earlier that might. You know, that will be delayed a little bit, probably after the upper house election, but that are important for U.S. foreign policy uh, as well. So to that end, in what ways, if any, should we expect Japan's foreign policy to change under Prime Minister Kishida? And what are some of these defense issues that will prompt domestic debate in Japan? So I think, let me take the foreign policy side first, because I think that's pretty straightforward. I think what you're seeing um, is a, a more continuity than change here. Obviously, Prime Minister Kishida was Prime Minister Abe's foreign minister for five years between 2012 and 2017. You are not seeing Mr. Kishida as somebody, I, I wouldn't see Mr. Kishida as somebody who's dramatically different in terms of how he perceives the world and how it he perceives Japanese interests need to be uh, maintained and, and promoted. Um, so I think that's one piece. So the free and open Indo-Pacific, uh, Mr. Kishida will be an enthusiastic supporter of the Quad. He will be an enthusiastic supporter of the larger fo- FOIP vision. Um, so I don't think you know that, that entails closer relationships, both strategic and economic with Australia and India, as well as uh, ensuring that the countries of ASEAN uh, understand that the 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 those the four the four larger maritime powers of Asia are not attempting to surpass you know um, to take away from ASEAN its centrality in 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 regional multilateralism. So I think you'll feel you'll you'll have a very consistent policy towards the Indo Pacific. I think you'll also see uh, Prime Minister Kishida being very much of the mind that Japan's trade relationships. It has a new trade understanding with the EU. It has, of course, joined and concluded the CPTPP, which is the successor to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, and now Japan is is the working group chair of the first country that wants to accede to the CPTPP, which is the United Kingdom. So you'll see the Kishida cabinet being an ardent supporter of free trade and certainly an ardent participant in multilateralizing uh, the liberalization of trade globally. So that's consistent, and, and that's another piece of continuity there. What's interesting is you see um, the Kishida cabinet coming up with a new ministry. So the first cabinet that Mr. Kishida uh, formed right after he was voted in by the Diet in early October uh, included a new minister, new ministerial portfolio, which is the Minister of Economic Security. And I think this is something that not just Mr. Kishida, but others in his party feel the time has come for Japan to think more seriously about how to ensure that its technological advantage its access to resources, its uh, the sustainability of its supply chains, and of course, this question of whether or not and how Japan might use economic sanctions in situations where applicable, things like the Magnitsky Act that we have in the United States. So these are ideas the Japanese government has been thinking about, as well as the LDP has been thinking about for some time. And I think you're going to see this as being maybe a new dimension, not a massive change, but certainly a new area of innovation for the Kishido cabinet. Now, on the defense side, um, I wrote a, a piece for foreign affairs. As you know, I wrote a book in 2019 about, about Japanese defense policymaking and the various dimensions of it. 
Um, I think this last election, especially the leadership election in the LDP, was a really interesting moment. Um, it gave us a, a, a nice glimpse into the kinds of um, voices that are now increasingly um, going to shape Japanese policymaking going forward on the military side. So it wasn't just the candidacy of Takaichi Sanai, who was one of the four contenders. Um, she was very explicit. In fact, she she was the one that was the architect of the 2% of GDP in the, in the campaign. She went on to become head of the Policy Research Council, which means she created the, the election manifesto in which that goal was included. Um, she was very explicit on certain things. It was a little surprising to many people, but got a lot of support within the party. And that included not just the 2% ambition um, for the budget, but also the idea that Japan should have much more, um, uh, much be much more willing to consider perhaps offensive capabilities, capabilities that would be in the past have been uh, off, you know, off, off limits for Japanese politicians to advocate for. She even came out and said, well, if the United States asks to deploy intermediate range missiles on our territory, we should say yes. And of course, this is uh, the concern here is not only North Korea's rising missile and nuclear threat to Japan, but also China's threat, longer term threat to Japan. So she had no holds barred kind of put on the table the kind the realist choices um, that Japan is going to have to to tackle. Kishida-san himself in that leadership race very early on said he would support uh, the acquisition of capabilities that would allow Japan to retaliate against uh, enemy bases should enemy uh, countries shoot missiles at Japan. So I think even among the people who tend not to be more uh, more hawkish, uh, and Kishida-san is not assumed to be a very hawkish member of the party, but the reality of that Japan is losing out in the military balance, both from nuclear acquisition and missile capabilities of the North Koreans, but even more importantly, the larger term maritime and air capabilities of um, of the Chinese. So I think you've got a, a party now that is much, much more willing to put these difficult defense choices on the table. And the framework, you've got a defense budget. The first defense budget we see, we'll get to see whether or not the LDP pushes hard on how much to increase that budget. Um, there's a redrafting of the national security strategy is expected. This would be the second time. The first time Japan developed this national security strategy was in 2013 under Mr. Abe. And so that's coming next year. And then following that will be the National Defense Program Guidelines, which is the 10-year defense plan. And with it, then a midterm five-year procurement plan. So we'll start to see this is where these choices will be made. Offensive capability for Japan, perhaps. Um, more assertive uh, use of economic sanctions by Japan, perhaps. So next year, I think, is going to be a very interesting year for the Kishida cabinet. Some of the more difficult choices, I am willing to guess, will be made after that upper house election. But the one that won't wait, and forgive me because there's a lot on the defense side, but the one that won't wait is the discussion of a Taiwan contingency with the United States. Uh, and that is uh, part of our two plus two consultations uh, between the defense minister and the, the foreign minister on the Japanese side and our secretaries of defense and state. That was expected this year, but I think with Japanese politics emerging the way they did, that will probably be postponed till early next year. But, but the Taiwan contingency is something that the U.S. and Japan are going to have to have a pretty serious conversation about 
And that will probably start before the upper house rather than after. And, and well, that sounds like uh, some very serious and very exciting potentially uh, next year in Japanese foreign policy. But uh, Dr. Smith, this episode might be a lot of our listeners' first time hearing about the intricacies of Japanese politics. So if there's one thing that our listeners should take away and learn from Japanese politics and Prime Minister Kishida's most recent election, what do you think that is in your opinion? So I think one thing, huh? <laughs> it's very hard to ask a Japan expert to just have one thing. Um, I think it is the structural, it is the reality of the structure of Japanese elections today. Um, and that is heavily, um, it heavily favors the LDP. As I noted, the way the districting is uh, laid out, it makes it very hard for an opposition political party to contend with a party as big and as uh, as experienced in terms of voter turnout and things like that um, than the LDP. So that's, can I have two things? Absolutely. Okay. So the structural, the structural um, bias, if you will, the structural benefit, I should say, not bias, uh, to the LDP is something that Japanese politics experts write about a lot. Um, so that's, that's one piece. The other is that in the LDP leadership race, a little bit less so in this race, but lurking in the background is this question of Japan's security and the geopolitical shifts that are going on in Asia. Japanese voters, like most voters in democracies, don't go to the polls uh, based on their foreign policy preferences. We all know that. Political scientists have demonstrated that over and over again. Um, but the context within which Japanese voters have to think about their choice of government is this context of a much, much more uh, worrisome neighborhood. And um, I think that also plays to the strengths of the LDP because it allows most voters to say, well, I might not like them on every policy, but they certainly have been in office and have the competency to handle a foreign policy or a security crisis. Now, the Achilles heel of the LDP has always been its money and power kind of corruptions, the idea that they've been in power too long and they get loose with how they exercise power. So I don't think Japanese voters are willing to tolerate the corruption piece of the LDP. So they're willing to, to give the LDP a slap on the wrist when it needs it. And I think you saw that in some cases in this election. But I think the long-term question for Japanese voters is, am I more likely, whether at the household level or at the national level, can I, am I more likely to be okay with the LDP in power or should I risk overturning it all for an opposition party? And I think it'll take a long time before Japanese voters become less risk averse on changing the party in power. So I think there's a structural factor, but there's also, I think voters may not always love the LDP, but the competency of LDP-led governments still means a lot at a moment when there's a certain degree of uh, insecurity and concern. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Smith. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. 
We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.